Do you think life is simpler after you retire? For some, it's actually more complicated when facing issues about health, estate plans, probate, long-term care, and more. That's why attorney CPA Joe Cordell hosts Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, providing smart solutions for seniors and an open forum for older adults with important questions about their future. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Elder Talk. Uh, our goal, as always, is to provide you useful, uh, interesting information. I think we will not fail to deliver today. Um, with me this week, as last week, is April Haskins. Uh, and April is kind of standing in for Susan, uh, who's taking off for a period. So Susan and April will kind of be in and out and exchanging over time. So uh, I think that that will give us some variety. Anyway, April has the advantage, though, of having worked in long-term care field in a facility in St. Charles. Um, so she kind of brings to the discussion lots of advantages in addition to having a deep commitment and interest in care for the aging and the challenges that that brings. So um, I want to return this week to talking about something that we touched on last week, and that's, you know, what is it that that you, April, as an insider would um, – would be asking and doing or advising a good friend regarding how they assure their parents get the right place to spend perhaps the rest of their lives. And I guess we can take, we can assume that we could be looking at a time when our parents can live in independent living, uh, maybe assisted. And then, of course, there'll be some cases where we're looking at, at uh, skilled care, which is what we traditionally call a nursing home. Um, so let's kind of approach it from that point, and let's go all the way back and say, from the time you decide to start searching, start us at that point and move us forward. Yeah. You know, my experience with working with different families is they do their initial start with uh, Googling options. So I think that's a great place, going online, looking up what type of community, whether it be independent living, as you had said, or assisted living, or if in need of skilled nursing, nursing home care, start by Googling what's available in the area if you don't have a friend like me who comes from that background. Uh, Well, I'm curious. Is it normally the parents who start the Googling and start this investigation themselves, or Do you find that it's that devoted son or daughter who initiates it? I think if we're looking at that independent living, it's the parents. They are starting to decide maybe downsizing and having some extra amenities doesn't sound all so bad. Right. And I think at that point, they may start the Google search or uh, maybe ask for help from the adult child in, in doing that initial Google search. You know, you can start with looking at pictures of communities online, uh, looking at the Google reviews, and I know we all take them for what they are. There's going to be positive, there's going to be middle of the road, and most likely each community may have something that somebody has said uh, that isn't so positive. And I think you have that in anything and that you, you're yeah, looking at. People, it, I hope people are sophisticated enough yes. to know that that every business owner, including myself, you know, it it's frustrating when you know you have so many happy clients or customers, and then you have one that, that for whatever reason, things went sideways, yeah. perhaps no fault of the business, perhaps some fault of the business. Mm-hmm. But but those bad reviews, and, and those are the ones that get reported. No one else does. Yes. And it's just, it, so people need to, whenever you're looking at a long-term care facility, you really need to to take 
not with a grain of salt, but with a proper perspective, any reviews. Yeah, I agree. And so looking at that, then my recommendation would be, I prefer, you know, I think you're going to get the best information from the community if you schedule an appointment to come in and take a tour. Now, with that said, I do value the perspective of popping in to see. You know, if you've scheduled the tour, it's easy to think in your own head, oh my gosh, they could put a show on for me while I'm there. Potemkin Village. That's right. right. That's right. And so I would schedule a tour first. Um, you know, most moving coordinators or an admissions coordinator or the administrator, when they're doing a tour, typically it's going to be about an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And it, it, the tour isn't just walking in and saying, and off to your left, you have this and off to the right, you have this. My gosh, you probably got that from just looking online. It should really start with a full conversation about husband, wife, and what they're looking for, what they need, what they want, what are their dreams. If it's um, maybe assisted living or um, skilled nursing, and it's the adult child making that decision, that time shouldn't go any less. It's what do mom and dad need or mom or dad or spouse? What vision do they have? What do you want to see for them? Start with allowing that person to ask you questions and be comfortable answering. Well, uh, what is it that would separate someone's intention to live in an independent living versus assisted living? Um, And and is it common for people to mistake that they think that they're independent and really they probably need some assistance? It's very common. You know, independent living... You need to look at it more as if somebody is still living completely on their own in their own apartment, where although the amenities that a beautiful community can put on, there is extra eyes on somebody, but those eyes are not designated to make sure that they're receiving care. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, again, looking at independent living, just think of that as a beautiful senior living apartment. When you're noticing that you're checking in on mom or dad and medications are still sitting on the table, but you had suggested in the morning when you left, I need you to take these, but they're still sitting there. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a sign that, you know, it doesn't mean we need to go as far as assuming dementia, but it does mean that with that aging brain, we we need some reminders. We need somebody who's going to go ahead and administer that medication. That's going to be a part of that assisted living environment. Well, the good news is, though, that that at, I think what we're talking about today is we're we're talking about a campuses in which you progress. So this independent living facility would be part of a larger facility that would include the assisted and the skilled care, typically. Typically, correct. Not always. I guess there are some independent freestanding senior apartments. Yeah, there. You know, from what I see in St. Charles County, there are, but now they've done conversions to where they've made some of the independent, um, they've transitioned into a rebuild and made the assisted living as a convenience to a family or an, uh, an adult making those decisions. So for instance, a Breeze Park out in St. Charles is going to be the full continuum of care, independent living houses or cottage style. Um, Breeze Park. Mm-hmm. So they have they have freestanding 
individual homes? They do. Like cottages, they call them? Correct. And then they can transition into assisted living if needed, or one person may stay independently living. But to visit your spouse, you may just be going to a building across the street where they have an assisted living apartment for the other spouse. And Mm. then transitioning from there, if need be, through the rest of the continuum of care. So I'm curious, um, uh, do you know if, if, uh, do people buy these houses or do you know if there's typically involved a large upfront payment and then thereafter perhaps some sort of dues or fees or whatnot, or is it straight rent from the beginning? Do you know? Each community is a little bit different. I've noticed in St. Charles County that's called a buy-in, and it's not as common. In fact, there may be a continuum of care that that still insists on doing that buy-in option where it is a significant amount of money up front, but guaranteed to be able to help that person through, you know, guaranteed that there will be, as we say in long-term care, a bed available as we transition to that next level of care, whatever that may be. Most places right now in St. Charles County, where I'm more familiar, um, are just the month-to-month rent. Yeah. Yeah, I can see where that would become more attractive. And people were in the industry were predicting a few years ago that they thought the heavy front-end fees would give way to um, in the competitive environment to people who are prepared to go with rents. And, and you're not as locked in. I will say in defense of those who, who have the, the upfront payment that often there is a provision that if the person passes away in a couple of years and say you've put down $500,000, mm-hmm. then you can get back um, some large percentage of that. But I, I can see where, uh, from a marketing standpoint, given the competition, and this industry is pretty competitive now, isn't it? It sure is, yeah. Yeah, so, so I wonder, as it gets... Or if it gets overbuilt, mm-hmm. will we see prices start to become increasingly competitive? And such things as you mentioned, going in on simply signing up on a payment basis or a rent basis. I think we've already started to see the the rent pricing become competitive. In I'm most familiar, I would say, with assisted living or assisted living memory care. And there's terms called the monthly rent that's more all-inclusive. So it's going to include... Meals, snacks, housekeeping, laundry service, the medication management, all of the care needed to support that person as they're aging in place. And some communities were doing a monthly rent plus additional fees per level of care, which would adjust the rent throughout that time. Both are fine options. They are. They're just different. It's a little bit different way of looking at it. I've noticed in the last year some of the those that were charging a monthly rent and then the additional add-on for level of care have now transitioned into just a monthly rent per the room that a room or apartment that's selected and it will include all of the things that we just spoke about because it's easier for the family to understand Mm -hmm. it's easier to to say this is what it's going to be and you don't have to maybe there will be an annual increase of a certain percentage on what that room cost is but not mm-hmm. by level of care cuz it gets a little bit complicated to to figure out what does that mean when does it change what if it's just a small change of condition that may revert back to the baseline we were at prior 
do we change yeah. the rent at that point? So I like that. I think it's it's better for the families making a decision. So someone could actually be in independent living, for example, and something develop where they need assistance for some significant period of time. And then perhaps they actually no longer need that assistance and they might go back to independent. So they have the flexibility with that fee structure. Well, that, that fee structure, but also I think of like a Brookdale community and they have additional services uh, that other communities may not provide. So they'll have an in-house PTOT and speech therapy and it may not be needed for the general population of those that are living in independent living, but maybe something has happened where somebody fell. They went to the hospital and then they've done rehab. Now they're transitioning back into independent living. It's still a very appropriate level of care, but they need just a little more assistance for a short period of time, extra rehab. Um, Brookdale has its own PT that would be able to service that person while still living in the independent living. Until That's they're pretty just attractive. strong enough. Correct. It is. It's a, it's a fabulous option. Yeah. And because so many people have the experience of being shuttled about. Yeah. So you, you're living at home and you're aging and then something happens, like you said, a fall or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So they go to perhaps initially to a hospital. And then depending on that hospital's capabilities, they may get transferred to a long-term care facility for rehab. Mm-hmm. So here they've gone from home to, to this one institution, now to another institution. And then maybe they go home, but I can tell you there's a good chance, based on my experience, that they're going to go stay with one of their children for a while, <laughs> you know, in order to yeah. get, get on their feet. Because their kids are often concerned that... Mom, I don't think that you're really ready to be on your own, even though from the hospital standpoint or the rehab, they're saying, yeah, yeah, we're going to release them. So the idea of going to a single place, a single community Mm -hmm. where you can progress or regress, as the case may be, from one one building to another. I mean, that's a lot better. It seems to me. Well, I like your phrasing. It is attractive because also some of that staff or those care partners that are working there may transition between different areas. So although you're progressing or digressing, you may still end up with some of the same care partners as you work through that continuum of care. So you're getting to know the administration, you're getting to know the staff, and that's home-like. It's comforting and it's familiar. You may be eating at the same place. That's right. You know, where they know what you like. Where you've made friends. Yeah, yeah, right, Mm -hmm. exactly. Go to dinner and you're seeing the same people. You may be in a wheelchair Mm -hmm. or whatnot. But so um, I definitely see the the charm of those places. Um, Let's take a break and then we come back. I want to talk about the impact of Medicaid, how that works. Because a a number of people will be relying on Medicaid to pay their long-term care costs. So that's going to maybe have some effect on their options. Let's talk about kind of the economics of that. Back in a moment. You're listening to Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, providing smart solutions for seniors. Presented by Cordell Planning Partners, your elder law advisors. And now, attorney CPA Joe Cordell. We're back with Elder Talk. And April Haskins has been telling us from the inside kind of a little bit about the long-term care industry. I hate to say industry, but long-term care communities. And uh, it is a very residential, a very personal thing. And people don't want to think of their loved ones as being in an institution. And, and their loved ones don't want to think of themselves as being in institutions. No. So 
the whole goal, I think, of people who who do this for a living is to address the desire for a warm community. I mean, it all really hinges on that. And I, don't you think that that's a sea change from perhaps what existed 20, 30 years ago? Yes. When we hear... I don't want to do this because I promised my spouse I would never put them in a nursing home. It's very common for us to hear that. That person was thinking this very institutional environment where all the walls are white and there's four beds in a room and everybody's walking around in a hospital gown or maybe in a zombie-like state of mind because they're over-medicated. <laughs> yeah. and, right, exactly, yeah. or tied down or just yes, vegetating. Yes, But now here's the thing. You're too young to have actually seen that. Now, I can tell you that I've seen this. Have you? Uh, and, and, of course, I grew up in Appalachia, so maybe I saw a little worse than exists some places. <laughs> but I went to visit when young a friend of a family member, and I went in this facility, and I remember how striking it was. Because it was, it was kind of what you described. It was quiet and and sterile and mm. institutional. It just, I had a very bad impression. So, if if that is what is imprinted on people's minds about that, and and remember, these people are older than I am. So most yeah. of them. So I'm 61. So I imagine some of these people you're talking about, where spouses are exchanging these discussions, they're probably 70s, 80s, 80s. and so they remember perhaps you know, times when it was more primitive than I do. Uh, so I think that the good message we can deliver to our listeners now is it's not impossible that such a place exists today, but I can tell you that that they're definitely below the radar because now you have regulators, right. you have a more competitive marketplace, mm-hmm. a lot more competition. Um, I would think that if places like that still exist, wouldn't you think they would still exist more in a rural Yeah. Very rural community. I would say very rural. Um, Again, even if it's rural, though, for those that do live further out, they're still very heavily regulated. We all abide by the same standards. So if we're looking at a skilled nursing community where we would find our Medicaid availability, they're going to be following the same federal and state regulations as, you know, an urban or a suburban community right outside of, you know, right in or outside of St. Louis or St. Charles. They just maybe, um, due to funds, haven't been able to do all of the renovations that they would want to do. But I think we should address the fact that they would want to. I mean, there's no one wants to stay looking a certain way. No, they don't. And and I think it's too easy to demonize. Uh, Not that I want to uh, uh, bequeath uh, sainthood on these people, but at the same time, I think that to say that, that when you see facilities that are not as nice that these are people who don't care. I think that's a rush to judgment. It's yeah. possible that you have people that don't care, mm-hmm. but it's at least as possible, if not more, that, that they're, they're wedged between their economics and, and their desires to have a better place. Um, this may be one of the only shows where you'll hear anything in defense of what's called a slumlord. <laughs> but, but let me tell you economically what goes on in those situations. There's a parallel here. We'll come back to it. Bear with me. So imagine in a city... That, that you can find across America. Now, only certain cities do you have rent controls, but on the coast, it's not unusual. So when you have rent controls, you have a landlord who can only collect so much rent. So prices have gone up, et cetera. 
And in the meantime, they have this building that's embarrassing to them. They're not proud of this building. I, I'm sure is true of, of of most. In any case, but before we you jump to the conclusion that when you see an ugly building in poor condition that is owned by somebody who don't care doesn't care, you need to look past that and see what are the economics. Are the economics such that 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 this person could not own this building at all, and the building should have been torn down if they were to try to to be profitable and do these things. So um, coming back to nursing homes, let's talk a little bit about how Medicaid works. And not that I want to make an analogy between a slumlord and, and a, a, a nursing home that's living with Medicaid, but, uh, but I do want people to understand the principles involved. Even though I think that Medicaid facilities now, and let me say this at the outset of our discussion, Medicaid facilities now are still much, much, much nicer than they were in the recent past even. And and they provide levels of care that I think most of our listeners would be happy with if they couldn't afford better, meaning we can always choose, we'll always take a Mercedes over a good, solid Chevrolet, for example. But a good, solid Chevrolet would be something that all of us would say, yeah, I wouldn't mind that vehicle. So I think that that as you explain this, I want people to understand the tension that sometimes is involved in Medicaid uh, funding. Yeah. Well, first of all, we have to look at the fact that that Medicaid funding is not a decision that the operator or administrator of a long-term care community is making a decision on. You know, this is where I would say, I guess, get out and vote. But it is truly our legislative team in Missouri that's going to make the in our in Missouri will make that uh, decision, yeah, on what that reimbursement rate is for Medicaid. So you know, as a community, you may be licensed with sixty beds that are certified for Medicaid and 60 that would be only for private pay. That's a pretty healthy balance. That is going to allow that community to be a little bit more profitable, not by choice, but just by chance based on how the beds are licensed because they're going to receive more income on the private pay bed than they would on the reimbursement for Medicaid. And forgive me, I don't know what that reimbursement rate is right now on Medicaid. It's been changing uh, the last it, couple of months. Yeah, the last uh, I checked, and it's been a few months, but it first of all, so people understand, it's based on the average cost of long-term care in the state of Missouri. So there's an average that includes most institutions, not all, and it's a calculation that's intended to produce a number that is uh, fairly neutral. But in reality, it ends up being too low. Uh, and, and in a way, also, it's self-fulfilling because that average is already a result of the money that's available to pay for their care. So yeah. in a way, it, it is um, perpetuating a number that is produced by these policies. But Nonetheless, for purposes of the calculations, it's the average rate that's charged for long-term care across the state of Missouri, and it was approximately uh, $4,900, call it $5,000, approximately $5,000 a month. And and that number, to me, seems low. It does it to you. It, it is, yeah. I mean, when I think about the majority of the communities that I have conversations with at the skilled nursing level, which, again, that's where we're going to be looking at Medicaid, they may have a private pay rate of $240 a day. 
So do the math. That so we're talking yeah. what ten thousand? Yes, or so a month. It's a seven to ten thousand for most communities if it's private pay. When that Medicaid reimbursement, I don't know, let's just say one hundred and fifty-five dollars a day. There's a big difference in that. So you know, at sixty beds that are Medicaid, sixty that are private pay, you're able to as an administrator or somewhat of a business owner, look at how can you break down your expenses and do upgrades and, you know, do all of the things that we want to do to make it a desirable place to live. But I think that if we took a community that is 112 beds that are all Medicaid certified, that leadership team still wants that same outcome. They still want to hire the best employees. They still want to provide the best guest experience. They want the landscaping to look amazing. But they also, in order to serve 112 other humans that are aging, we want that community to stay open. We don't want them to give up on what they're doing. But they have to be smart with how Mm -hmm. they spend their finances. Yeah, and, and that, that in a way is the analogy, though, to, to rent-controlled apartments is that um, you only have so much to spend. Mm-hmm. And though you, you would love to have beautiful landscaping, you'd love to have a, the, the halls repainted, you know, once a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are things that, that may not be practical. And, and people need to understand that facilities that have an increasingly high percentage of their long-term care expenses paid through Medicaid are having to work on a lower budget typically than they might charge others. Talk a little bit about that. What is common? Is it common to have facilities in some parts of the state that are 100% Medicaid? How common is that? It is very common. Yeah, um, I know. I can think of, I work in National Healthcare Corporation, NHC, and I think about the communities that we have. So, for instance, NHC in town and country has always ran as 100% Medicaid. Doesn't mean that that's all they have, but it does mean that... um, Anyone could be in any bed there and transition into Medicaid as they've spent down their finances. And that's in town and country. And that's in town and country. That surprises me. Mm-hmm. How is that possible? You know, the community has been there a very long time. I want to say it started as the Clayton House. That The building itself is over 60 or 65 years old. Mm-hmm. And I don't know when the determination was made on how it would be licensed and would it be 100% Medicaid certified. But it is, and um, that gives option, you know, more option for people who are in need of Medicaid to look at that building. But some move in as private pay, and they private pay a very long time. And, and the private pay is more. It is more. So that means mm-hmm. that as long as you have some private pay, then you're kind of helping yeah. subsidize the shortfall. So I get it that, as you said the example a while ago, a 50-50 blend. Mm-hmm. So um, the people who are private pay are, in effect, helping to pay some of the costs. Because one thing we should make clear, and you should talk about, when you have a facility that's part private pay and part Medicaid, it's not as if there are two levels of care. That is right. Everything is going to work the same for the person living there. Um, So when you have a private pay patient, it's not that they're on, you know, the penthouse floor receiving different amenities. Better food and all that. It's still the same level of care. So they're receiving that same care level that's needed for their diagnoses, for doctor recommendations and doctor orders. 
um, you know, state and federal surveyors will come in annually to make sure that, well, let's just say this is probably one of now the most heavily regulated industries. So we're not regulating any differently if you're private pay or if you are in need of that Medicaid. Medicaid's a beautiful option. I mean, I look at where my family's at and with aging parents and an aging person myself, I You're am very quite certain aging, anyway. we will need Medicaid for both of my well, parents. Maybe everybody will. It I mean, it, it, you mm-hmm. know, we're talking about national health. Yeah. So it might be the future holds that all this, for good or ill, mm-hmm. that all of this may be the result of a national plan. Uh, maybe I won't be around for that, and I think I might prefer that. But in any case, there is a trend toward uh, more uniformity in health care, which probably will affect long-term care. I'm, I'm Guessing. I'd be curious to see what happens. Yeah. So, um, so the, the the food is the same. The mm-hmm. the people who are caring for them the same. I really think that that point is worth emphasizing because some listening are assuming that oh well if it's half Medicaid and half not then you have these two tiers of care. There's one tier of care. It's forbidden to discriminate against a Medicaid recipient. Absolutely. So I mean there are lots of consequences for that, and um, and it's checked. So. So I, I wouldn't fear that. And I think then what might flow from that is that um, are you suggesting that somebody would probably be better served if they're if you, for example, are shopping for the, a place for your parents and maybe they're looking at skilled care that you might lean toward a facility that's going to have half or some significant portion private pay? <sighs> I mean, I think that that would be tough to say. You know, I guess if we look back at looking at it as a business model, logically, it seems like that would make sense. But again, when it goes back to who's actually providing the care, I think the care can potentially be the same. We can still have a great standard of care. We just may not have had those walls painted every year. Yeah, or a new the facility. carpet cleaned. Uh, you know, professionally cleaned as often as just being extracted. Um, You know, if that's an option, I think that's great. But sometimes I think what we run into with part private pay and part certified for Medicaid is that there's a limited amount of Medicaid beds. So a community like that is going to end up on a wait list when you're calling around Uh. and you hear we have a five-year wait list for Medicaid one, oh my gosh, that's scary to think about. And two, what do I do? Well, that's because half, they cannot use those uncertified beds for Medicaid. It's just not an option. Where if it's 100% certified, it could have a healthy blend of private pay and Medicaid. But that wait list may not, well, there may not be a wait list. Or it may be much faster because... As somebody leaves the building due to passing away, then mm-hmm. if it was private pay, now there's a Medicaid option there. Yeah. So think about uh, people should think about the arithmetic here. Mm-hmm. Let's assume that you uh, have 50 50 and you have um, Medicaid pay, and that's we'll call it with with adjustments, let's say 5,500, uh, which if it's not there, it'll be there. So um, 5500 for half, and then the other half may be at 7500 or more. So, so the benefit to the Medicaid recipient 
is that they're getting subsidized in a way, and so you'd expect the facility, all other things being equal, mm -hmm. you'd expect some additional maybe amenities or maybe the painting is done more regularly and the landscaping and things that may not uh, uh, directly impact care, but which reflect on being quality a Quality nice, of life. Yeah, quality of life. So uh, I can see why you end up with the waiting list is because people given a choice would rather be in one of those facilities, the Medicaid recipients. So so you have this perhaps three-year time frame in some places to get in or more. Yeah, three to five years is typical. You know, I think about our sister community across the parking lot, Villages of St. Peter's, and it is somewhat of a continuum of care, a, a traditional assisted living and skilled nursing, long-term care and skilled nursing memory care, and then they do have um, short-term rehab available for those that are just in need of rehab prior to going home. Um, if you call, again, it's usually on a three- to four-year wait list, um, with the understanding, though, that those that are in the community do take priority to that wait list. Mm, so, for instance, it is an advantage if you're in, again, my assisted living, that's solely for those living with dementia, or the traditional assisted living, if, in fact, we need skilled nursing or Medicaid, we do take priority on that three to four or five year wait list that they have. But again, what you're saying is, yeah, I mean, it's still a very beautiful community because they do have that private pay fund. So it, it does get updated more often. There are renovations made, new furniture brought in where, you, yes, if it's solely Medicaid, um, it may be faster to get in. But, you know, you can always move somebody into a Medicaid community and continue on a wait list somewhere else. Hmm. Yeah. Think, creatively thinking, thinking right. outside the box. Yeah, yeah. And I can see where some people would be forced to do that because they don't have the private funds. Mm -hmm. And so, again, it, it's another feature that's offered by these continuing care communities that make them more attractive in many ways. I get that. And the idea of being able to shop for such a community that has those other characteristics we've talked about and also is some blend between Medicaid beds and, and those that are non-Medicaid, I can see where – that would produce a desirable place, and it would be one that you'd want to wait for to the extent you could. Um, now, let, let me mention, too, though, in fairness, there is this option where I imagine those that are all Medicaid and perhaps outside a metropolitan area such as St. Louis or Kansas City are probably going to have lower costs. So in fairness to them, they're still getting the same amount of money from Medicaid uh, but they may be able to make a dollar go further than perhaps their counterpart in town and country. So it may they may be able to give a facility that, that perhaps does have a pretty nice quality of life because the people they're hiring in that local community are working for less. All the laborers, all the independent contractors and others would typically charge less. The real estate costs less. So you would imagine that that perhaps you could give for the same dollars, assuming all Medicaid, mm -hmm. for the same dollars, you might be able to give more quality. I mean, I've seen it myself within my husband's family. His grandma was in a community that was more rural Missouri. And going and visiting, 
it was still lovely. I mean, the heart and soul was still put into painting and the decor. It may not have that Roots Carlton type feel, the more modern, very upscale, but certainly well-kept plants out beautiful decor i'd love to tell you the name of it but it's been a few years i can't remember where she was at uh-huh. but yes so still able to provide great care and keep up with the building yeah so um so i i think that rural long-term care facilities because you hear of this occasional bad apple as i mentioned earlier uh that can happen perhaps in rural facilities uh, that may not be subject to the same standards by the by its clients that perhaps in the cities there are, but for whatever reason that sometimes happens and we hear about it. But but don't be under the impression that a rural facility is going to be automatically inferior to one that's in the city, especially if you're talking. And I should say maybe exclusively if you're talking about Medicaid. I think that when you take away Medicaid and people are paying market price, I do think there are more generally speaking, more opportunities in the cities to have quality of life and more competitive environment um, and and kind of -of state-of-the-art expectations. Well, I think that the competitive environment has really made uh, operators think differently about a community. I think from my understanding, again, this is me being an administrator myself in our company, we're given a lot of freedom of our budget. Our budget's our budget, and we make our decisions on our own. And I would like to think that the other um, long-term care companies operate the same. But again, there is a home office or a regional or others that we do report to. And sometimes you need to make financial decisions that are expensive to be able to stay competitive and to be able to be as beautiful as the new building that yeah. just opened. Um, it's important, you know, for, for me, the way I look at things is I always have to think outside the box. I don't want to get stuck in this way of thinking that keeps it where we're not progressing as an industry. And I think, unfortunately, that can be all too easy to do being regulated. And, you know, uh, as companies have been around for a long time, so it does take some forward thinking and it takes thinking outside the box to make these things happen. Yeah, and it's not enough to think about meeting the minimum. No. I mean, at, at, whenever you're in an environment that's not competitive and you have government regulations, then all you have to do is meet the minimum and you make more money, you succeed. But in an environment that's competitive, meeting the minimum just doesn't cut it you've got to in addition meet the guy who's building a facility or gal next door yep so um i I think that's healthy for the industry let's talk about one thing in the time an additional point that i think is important in the time we have left uh how much time do we have left dylan can you is he signaling three minutes three minutes okay so we have to do this quick I want I, I want to address what I know is on the minds of some of our listeners, and that's the possibility that there will be some form of dementia. And and I know that you work in a facility specifically, or the, the facilities you, you've been more recently involved with were specifically for people with dementia. These, these continuing care communities that you and I have done an effective job of talking about how wonderful they are, um, how do they meet that need? Uh, do they have a place for that, that unique for the unique needs of somebody who has Alzheimer's, for example, who they don't really fit the model of going into a skilled care facility where you need IVs and and all this medical equipment, but they do need special care. So is it common to have such 
places. In and those you're specifically then talking about somebody who has the need for the Medicaid option. Or not. Let's talk about both. Let, let, let's okay. just talk generally. Do, do, do the continuing care communities have places for dementia patients? Yes. In fact, the majority of a full continuum of care, I can't think of any that don't have either memory care at the assisted living level or memory care at the skilled nursing level. Really? Now, if it's just an independent and traditional assisted living, sometimes they may not have incorporated an area where those that need that specialized attention would live currently. I know we're transitioning that way, but the population as baby boomers are aging and, you know, um, you know, no cure, no preventative to this world of dementia, uh, those numbers are increasing. I think the last statistic I read is by two 2030, it will be 82 million in the world that will have some form of dementia, not just a little bit of aging brain. So the need is there. And yes, you know, if we're in a skilled nursing environment and we need Medicaid, they still have an area specialized for those that require that type of attention. So they're not sharing a room with somebody who has a broken hip. You know, no. And it's really a blessing because what I have found is we're trying to, you know, as we learn about dementia, we've been forcing people to try to live in a world that is not comfortable for them. As their brain is slowly dying in a certain way, we're still giving them the same expectations that they should be able to answer questions and they should remember how their life has went and they should know where their car keys are and they shouldn't become incontinent. And that's not the reality of what's happening. So we want them to have a place where they can thrive with dementia and people aren't coming at them with expectations that aren't real they can walk about and do things safely which doesn't fit the profile of the typical skilled care facility it's it's designed to help people who have these medical needs so um i just wanted to address that because it it is one of those contingencies that if you go into a long-term care facility or say say you go into independent living and you want to stay in this community you want to believe that if there is some sort of dementia there is a place for you there and you're saying uh in the vast majority of such places there are Yes, but do your research. Do Ask. the research. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess we're time's up. Boy, time flies and you're having fun, right? That was fine. All right. Now, now next week, okay. we should pick up with this discussion, and, and we're going to have somebody. We don't know the name yet. We're going to have somebody from St. Louis County. We're going to talk about some of the facilities in St. Louis County and make some recommendations, give you the inside scoop. And, of course, April, again, will comment on her unique uh, information about uh, St. Charles in particular more than St. Louis County, but a lot of knowledge about the industry. Time flies. Another episode of Elder Talk. Till next time, take care. You've been listening to Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, providing smart solutions for seniors with attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Listen again next Saturday for another edition of Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, sponsored by Cordell Planning Partners, your elder law advisors. For more information, visit eldercarelaw.com. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.